That is the most enthusiastic bumper I've ever experienced in my 14 years at Sherwood Oaks. Yeah, I feel like that should be like a rave moment. All the kids up there, we pass each other across the aisles over our heads. Caleb would help with that, I think, wouldn't you? No, he wouldn't. Hey, uh, welcome to Sherwood Oaks this morning. I am pleased to be here and honored to be here. We've got Tom Ellsworth in the house this morning. Which is great for you and uh, horrible for me. God bless him. Um, I, I was telling, uh, telling Matt back there, I said, I, I'm going to trip on the stairs. I'm going to fall all over the floor. And he goes, but you got a new jacket on and you look great. I thought, well, that's, that's small consolation. So we're glad you're here. It is, I love this this campus here in this church in particular, um, Sherwood Oaks in general on this campus in particular, um, because we are a church that is committed to being a great church for our community. Uh, this past weekend, our guys met yesterday morning at uh, the men's warming shelter, and they worked hard at getting you know, doorknobs replaced and making the place secure and safe for the guys who are going to be taking advantage of a place to stay warm. Um, this winter who might not have any other place to do so. And so I just want to give a shout out to our men's group who showed up and helped with that. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah. So here's my request though. St. Vincent's uh, Catholic Church fronted the money for a lot of the repairs that we did there yesterday morning. And I thought it would be great if we could just sort of help reimburse them for that. I'd like to raise about $500 to give back. Uh, and uh, excess will go into the men's warming shelter. We've got a few boxes out there in the foyer this morning. If you would like to, to make a nice little donation um, to that, reimburse them for the outlay of money they gave to us and loaned us for doing this project, uh, and then give a little bit to help get the men's warming shelter up and running again. Yesterday, uh, many of you I saw at the spaghetti dinner we did down on the square, put out a long table there, and thousand, over a thousand people showed up to, uh, to have some spaghetti dinner and raise money for the men's warming shelter. We don't have the exact estimates yet, but it should be enough to kind of cover some, cover some expenses prayerfully. Uh, and then you'll get a chance, if you want, to help just sort of man and volunteer uh, a night um, at the men's warming shelter when we get it up and running. So look for opportunities to do that. Uh, especially Connie, speaking of cleanup, women's ministry, or Connie in particular, said that the Saturday cleanup here at the kitchen is on hold for a while. There's a lot of stuff going on, and let's just focus on uh, the things that are immediately in front of us rather than worry about that. We can do that at some point in time. All that to say, this is a great place to be. We want to make an impact in our community in good ways. So thank you for if you've been part of that or helped in that in any way. We are in a series called Living Like Jesus, where we are exploring how Jesus lived and how his life impacted the lives of people around him in the prayerful hope that we can carry on this legacy. We can live like Jesus, and we can impact people's lives around us. You know, uh, one of Sherwood Oaks' values that is that we mentor across generations, meaning that we want to be engaged in people's lives, whether they're young kids. If you're under the age of 15 in here this morning, say, hooah. Okay. <laughs> Nudge someone beside you who's under the age of 15 and say, you can do better than that. We're going to do one. We're going to do it again on the count of three, okay? And think like a Marine. One, two, three. I knew I could count on Zara. 
So one of the ways that we do this is uh, Wednesday night classes we're doing here. Rob's teaching a great class on Joshua. We've got men's ministry. We've got children's stuff going on. We've got student ministry. So if you have anything going on on Wednesday nights, we encourage you to come down here and learn a little bit more about uh, how to live like Jesus. So uh, Jesus gave us many examples how to intentionally live and how to intentionally lead And uh, today we're going to look at one of those accounts found in John chapter 4. Before we do that, I want to remind us, I don't know if you guys feel like you've got it all together. Kamel sort of referenced this. None of us have it quite right yet. Uh, Paul said the same thing in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 and 14. He said this, I'm going to ask you to just read along with me so that we can all mutually acknowledge that none of us have got it all together just yet. Can you do that with me? Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, like Paul, we want to press on towards the goal. We want to be intentionally moving forward, upward every day, closer to you and to the call that you have on our lives. Help us by the Holy Spirit to to take this call seriously. We pray for Sean this morning as he's preaching up at uh, the East Campus and for all those who are are serving uh, around our community this morning, opening your word. We pray that, uh, that together, as a community, we would represent you better to the folks who still need to know you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, John chapter 4. The account we're going to look at this morning is about a woman, a woman from Samaria. Most of us know her by the term, the woman at the well. Disciple of Jesus named John was so impressed by this story. It's an amazing story, by the way, that he gave a lot of space. It's one of the longest accounts of Jesus that you're going to read in the Gospels. It's a beautiful story. Now, like John, I believe that it's not just a random story, but, but it is an intentional story. I believe God orchestrated this story intentionally because God works with purpose. God is intentional. So although it's a long story, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles if you've got them or your Bible app and follow along, read along with us. And if you don't have either one, we do have the words up on the screen. I typed them in myself yesterday, and I did not do a spell check. So you're probably... You might want to watch this just to see what shows up up there. (laughs) John 4, we're going to start with verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. Those two verses simply tell us that uh, something is brewing down in Judea. And Jesus is like, okay, I probably need to make myself scarce for a little bit. So verse 3 says this, he left Judea and he went back once more to Galilee. Galilee's up in the north um, and Judea is down in the area sort of where Jerusalem is. And to get from Jerusalem up to Galilee where Jesus' sort of family is, he has to go through, verse 4, Samaria. Verse 4 says he had to go through Samaria. Now what does that mean, kids? When your mom says you have to do something, what does that mean? You better do it. You better do it. But in fact, with Jesus, he didn't 
literally have to go through Samaria. There were other ways to get to where he wanted to get to. He could have taken the coastal route along the sea, which is beautiful. And if you're looking at a map of Israel, the coast is over there on the west side, uh, the left-hand side. Or he could have gone up through the Jordan Valley, which is a beautiful, fertile river plain. That's a nice place to go. But instead, the scriptures say he had to go through Samaria, which literally was sort of the fastest route But no good Jew ever took that route because to do so, they had to go through a neighborhood where it was not safe to be. And it wasn't just that it was unsafe for Jews, but if Jews were in the area, it was kind of unsafe for for Samaritans too. They had this really rocky relationship that goes way back, and we're going to get to that in just a little bit. But Jesus knew the tensions, and he went there anyway. Verse 5, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Anyone remember the story of Jacob? And he had sons. He had a lot of them, and one of the sons was named Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. So... The two things I like about this story so far that reminds us that God takes us on intentional journeys and God finds us in intentional places. So Jesus sets down beside a well. Now, Jacob's well was dug into the local limestone to a depth of about 138 feet, and that's a couple of semi-truck trailers long. It was surrounded by a beautifully stone-carved wall that protected it from animals getting into that area and maybe falling in and spoiling the water. It also sort of protected it from, from other elements as well. And it was positioned right at the, in the valley between two mounts. Now, a mount is like a mountain, except it's smaller. And it's like a hill, except it's bigger. So there's hills, and then there's mounts, and then there's mountains. So these were two mounts called Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebo which were considered holy mountains to the Samaritans. So in the region surrounding these two mountains, right here, sort of a mountain here and a mountain here, this valley, and then all around that valley, a lot of things in Bible stories happened here, Bible accounts happened here. One of the things that I thought was really interesting was Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau were two. So because the kids are here, we're going to teach a little bit like this as a class. So one of your responsibilities as students is to is to answer. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, probably. So you just call out the answer, and you get special credit if you're right. So Jacob and Esau were brothers, and they were very special brothers. They did not like each other. They had cheated. Well, Jacob had cheated and lied to Esau a number of times, and so um, they did not get along well. But here in this region, Jacob and Esau shook hands like their mom said to do, and made up, at least for a while. (laughs) Jacob and Esau reconciled here. In addition, Jacob, who had married uh, a gal whose father served other gods, had a bunch of idols with him, and he, at this sort of, in this area, buried his idols and committed himself to serving only the one true God. And this is also the general area where Joshua told the Israelites and gave them the ultimate ultimatum. He said, choose you this day whom you will serve. Are you going to serve the foreign idols and the foreign gods here that you found in this region? Or are you going to serve the one true God who is God over everything? 
So all of these events talk about the, the, the tension between putting the past in the past and moving into a better future. In addition, what time of day was it? Noon. Now, I like to garden. Here's what I know. When I want to water the garden, I water it either early in the morning or late at night. I don't water it in the daytime. It's too hot. Things evaporate and dry up. So the ladies of the village, those who would be responsible for making sure that water was in the household, would have either done it early in the morning or later in the evening, not at the daytime. The only people who would go to the daytime well would be people who didn't really want to be seen by anybody, kind of like me, midnight at Walmart. I go there because I don't really want to run into anyone. <laughs> so, so this is this lady's story. She's here because she didn't really want to run into anyone in. Um, God sets us up into intentional encounters. So verse 7 says this, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? In parentheses it says this, his disciples had gone into town to buy food because that's what you do when it's noon. You get look for something to eat. A couple of months ago, I was coming back from Chicago, and uh, I was coming down, I was checking out of the hotel, I got in the elevator, and you know how you stand in the elevator, and you just stand, and you push the button, you stand, and you look, and I'd gone down one or two floors, and the door's open, this guy gets in, he pushes the elevator, the down button, and, and stands facing the door, and he says, when did you get into town? And I said, well, uh, a couple of days ago, uh, just, do I know him, you know? You know how it is when you see people. I'm really good at making friends, but I'm really bad at remembering their names. And I didn't see his face while well. I'm thinking, how do I know this guy? Is he a, is he a Sher Sherwood Oaks East person? There's a lot of people there that know me that I sometimes don't know. So I'm standing there going, I got in a couple days ago. Who is he? He says, do you want to grab dinner later? I'm like, oh, who says, I go, well, I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready ahead of time. He turns and looks at me and goes, I'm not talking to you. <laughs> so I think of this Samaritan woman when she's getting the water and this guy's sitting over there and he's obviously the Jew and she's filling the water and she hears him say, will you give me a drink? And she's like, are you? Are you talking to me? Me? For two reasons. Because one, she says this in verse 9. You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And again, here's these parentheses. And these parentheses are really interesting. It says this, for Jews, what does it say? Do not associate with Samaritans. Samaritans, as I said before, have a long and complicated history with Israel. When the Jews came back from captivity in Babylon, look it up, kids, read about it later. They came back, and Nehemiah was tasked with rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, and he came into opposition with some of the leaders who were already there. Some of the, these leaders had married foreign wives, and they were sort of Jews and pagan mixed up. And, and Nehemiah's, like, Nehemiah's like, no, 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 this is a, you can't, you can't be doing this. Well, some of these guys got mad. One of them was a priest. He was married to a pagan wife, and, and he and his family 
just moved to Samaria, and he had some loyal followers, and they went there as well, and sort of established a new form of religion. In fact, when it came time to build a temple, they built another temple, and they built a temple on this Mount Gerizim. So they were seen as uh, betrayers of their own ethnicity. Ethnicity mattered a lot to them because of the intermarriage issue, but they also were seen as betrayers of God because they had violated the promise of God to keep the one true God in front and center. In fact, there were some Jews who were so serious about this that they would insist that if a Samaritan shadow even fell on you while you were walking, you would have to have yourself ceremonially cleansed before you could go into the temple. This phrase, do not associate, means literally they don't drink from the same cup or share the same utensils as a Samaritan. Jimmy Carter, who was one of our president's kids a long, long, long time ago, wrote this in his book, Living Faith. He says, all Southerners who live during the time of racial segregation can recognize its bold nature. He says, as a child, when my parents were away on a trip, I lived, ate, and slept with our African-American neighbors. My black boyhood friends and I played and fished together. We plowed side by side with mules and played on the same baseball team. But when I carried water to a group of people, black and white, working in the field, it would have been inconceivable for black and white workers to drink from the same dipper. So for Jesus to drink from the Samaritan's cup was a powerfully symbolic act of acceptance and friendship. Now she says this, why are you a Jew talking to me, a Samaritan woman? Now, it wasn't just any woman. A man speaking to a woman was, was an issue, but this was a woman who we will find later had something of a reputation. She was, she was nobody important in the village and perhaps even had something of a bad reputation. She had made poor decisions in her previous life, and, or life had just happened bad to her, and she experienced some tough times, and society wasn't kind to her. So she chose this hour of the day uh, for this back-breaking task because she could do it without hearing the murmurs or the side-eye of the other ladies. Sigmund Tonstad, who's an author, wrote this, three huge barriers have been overcome in the span of the first few minutes of this conversation. First, a Jew talks to a Samaritan, breaching the socioeconomic barrier. Second, a man talks to a woman, breaching the gender barrier. Third, a pious person, Jesus, talks to a sinful person, breaching the moral and the religious barrier. It's, it's an intentional conversation. Verse 10 says this, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So why are you asking me, a Samaritan? And Jesus says, if you knew who was asking you, you would have completely flipped the tables and asked me. Now, the following verses in your Bibles, if you're reading along, all run together in a nice, compact sort of way. It takes a couple of minutes to read the whole thing if you're a really slow reader. But I think the conversation took a lot longer than what it looks like on the page. So I think the woman hears his words and continues filling up her, her jar. 
And then after a thoughtful moment, responds. Sir, the woman said, you obviously have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. Where do you think you're going to get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Can you picture her? Rolling her eyes and going, who, who is this guy? It's gone from weird to worse. In 13, Jesus answers, everyone who drinks this water from Jacob's well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become to them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then I imagine a long, another pause as she lets his words sort of find a place in her head and in her heart. And then finally she says this, Sir, give me this water so that I, I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And Jesus responds by this, go, call your husband and come back. Now, this is a moment that can define the, the rest of the conversation. She chooses in this moment to speak truthfully, or she could have said, uh, I'll have to do it another time. But instead, she trusts Jesus. Something in the way he's spoken to her instills trust. She goes, I, I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. As I said, she has two options. She could have gotten offended and left in a huff, but she stayed and trusted him with a little more of her life. Something about his presence and the way he says this instills trust in her. This Jew has drank from my cup. This man has talked to a woman. And he's done this all the time, knowing this about me. You know, I think it mattered how he spoke to her. His words were kind and gracious. They weren't arrogant. How he spoke to her mattered and how we speak to others matters. And in the end, the woman says, I think you're a prophet. Now, I find it interesting. A few moments ago, she's like, who do you think you are? You think you're better than Jacob? Now she's like, I think you're a prophet. And then she turns the conversation. She said, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, many people say this is a detour off the conversation, like she's trying to distract him from something deeper. But if you have a one life, you know this, that people are interested in spiritual discussions. And in my experience, the people that God has put in my life who are broken and hurt, are broken and hurt in some way because of their experience with religion. And their brokenness and their hurt comes from those places where religion failed to answer and speak into their need. So when she says this about worship and where you worship and how you worship, what she's saying is, I got lots of spiritual questions and I messed up, but, but I'm willing to 
to talk about this. I need to know more. I need to have some questions and issues resolved. This question comes from a heart that has been hurt and broken down. Her life is a mess. But her questions point to the fact that she still has a spiritual need. And how many spiritual moments do we miss because we assume that someone is not interested in spiritual conversations? You know, this woman gave every, every indication that she was sort of done with people and with, gen- and with religion in general. But when trust was established, she was ready to engage. Here's what Jesus says. Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor down in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, as a worship leader, I've read lots of books on worship, and this phrase right here, spirit and truth, comes up a lot. This passage comes up a lot. For our purposes this morning, here's what I think Jesus is saying. Mountains and temples are secondary. How often do we make secondary things really important? Where do you go to church? Have you ever asked that as the, when you meet someone? Where do you go to church? And when they answer, you can immediately start to sort of put them in a category. Oh, you go to that church. Mountains and temples and churches are secondary. The primary thing God is looking for are not temple worshipers or mountain worshipers or church worshipers. He's working for true worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. Again, I've, I've read lots of books on this, and I've come down to some simple things. I think worship in spirit and in truth means that our hearts and our lives line up. God doesn't call us to worship in spirit on one Sunday, and then this Sunday we're going to worship in truth. No, worshiping in spirit and truth is the same thing. Worship in spirit and truth. It means that our hearts and our lives line up. We love Jesus with all our heart and our soul, and we obey his commands with all our mind and our strength. Here's where I get really interested in this story. The woman now says this. Not only are you a prophet, but she says, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything. I feel like she's feeling him out a little bit. Now, the Samaritans had a different word for Messiah. In Judaism, Messiah was loaded with political baggage. But the Samaritans used a word, restorer, instead. Restorer. In fact, an old Samaritan writing says this, the restorer will come in peace and reveal truth. So she says this, basically, I know that when the restorer comes, all this will make sense. And then Jesus says, maybe after a very dramatic pause, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Now, this is the dramatic highlight of the moment. It's all been leading up to this moment when she finally realizes that not only is he greater than Jacob, and not only is he a prophet, but he is the Messiah or the restorer. You guys uh, watch those television, HGTV, you know, reveal shows where they, you know, they bring the couple in, they've got the blindfolds on, they say, take your blindfolds off. I'm watching that. I love those shows. Anyone else besides me watch those shows? So what happens when they take the blindfolds off? They cut to commercial. Like, ah, I got to watch a toothpaste commercial when I really want to see what they've done with that ugly fireplace. 
Well, this is the dramatic highlight of the moment. Jesus says, I am he. And we cut to commercial. The disciples come back just at that moment. Ah, they want to talk about lunch. What does the Samaritan woman do? She runs off. You're like, oh, no. Well, that opportunity was blown. But no, what happens? What does she do? She runs back to the city. Verse 28, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? What was their response? Did they laugh at her? Did they turn their backs to her? Do they push her back to the edges of society? No, the scripture says they actually listened to her. They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Jump to 39, verse 39. Many of the Samaritans heard from that town, believed in him because of the woman's testimony. That's it. Who was she? She was nobody, and yet her testimony affected their lives. Never underestimate the value of your story for someone else. Your story can impact an entire town. So they came out because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I did. Many of them believed him just because of that. I believe he's the Messiah. Well, if Tim believes he's the Messiah, you know what? I believe he's the Messiah too. People people that trust you will follow you. Don't be afraid to speak into their lives. 40, when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. Jesus camped out there in that town for two days. Because of his words, many more became believers. Now, it's not just the testimony of the woman. Jesus has a chance to speak into their lives as well. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you have said. Now we have heard for ourselves. We know that this man really is the Savior of the world. People will go a long way on the word of our own testimony but eventually they come to, to, to learn and discover who Jesus is themselves. That's what we want. But I love this. Imagine this. The woman who was rejected by the town because of her history and her past now has become the missionary back to her community. She's the evangelist. This woman could have kept the good news from the people who had hurt her, but instead she replaced bitterness with boldness and hurt with hope. And she brings the prince of peace and the way, the truth, and the life back to her people. Do you remember that old Samaritan prophecy about the restorer bringing peace and truth? She, in a sense, was a restorer. You know, we're going through this series, living like Jesus. She, she was doing that. How many of us are called to be restorers to our own families and our own friends and our own community? So all of these intentional moments teach us something God has intentionally worked his plan into our journey. In fact, sometimes when we make a really big effort at going out of our way to reach someone, we've sort of detoured from God's, God said, well, I I wish you wouldn't have taken three hours to drive to Indianapolis to talk to Bill because I had two people lined up for you right back home in Bedford. When we go out of our way, we might miss what God has intentionally put in our journey. God is intentional about what he's searching for. He is looking for sincere and true worshipers. And God can intentionally use all of us, rich, poor, young, old, religious, non-religious, sinner, saint. He comes searching for all of us, and he can use any of us to share the good news. And what I love the most is God can take even the most casual conversations, and when the Holy Spirit gets in the middle of them, amazing things can happen. This is, this is a story about mountains and water 
and at the end of it, a woman and an entire community has been introduced to Jesus, and many of them have accepted him. So when you are having conversations with people, never forget that the Holy Spirit is in there as well. He's listening, and he, oftentimes, as I was telling Tom, we were talking about this last week, he's actually interpreting what you say. People walk away and say, I love what you said about XYZ, and I say, well, I talked about ABC, not XYZ, but thankfully, you heard XYZ because that's what God wanted you to hear. So the Holy Spirit is in the middle of our conversations, and I can trust him to speak even when my words are feeble and, and I fumble. And this last thing is, it seems to be obvious at this point in time, but God himself is intentional. Let's go back to verse 4. At the very beginning of the story, it says, he had to go through Samaria. And what I've discovered is that ultimately that journey was not about Jesus saving some steps. It was about Jesus saving a life. And not just one life, but many lives. Jesus had to go through Samaria. His heart demanded it. He was not coerced. He was not, didn't have to be convinced. Instead, he was compelled to go through Samaria. He could do nothing else because he knew there was a woman with five husbands who needed to meet him. When I was growing up, I grew up in a little Pentecostal church, and we had this tradition at the, the end of a service that after some fiery, fire and brimstone preaching, people would come to the altar and, and pray through. Anyone familiar with that term of praying through? Now, as a kid, I would watch this happen, and, and, and I participated at, at some levels, and you pray through, and, and I, I guess my understanding as an adult is that oftentimes there's things in our own life that we need to sort of clear out before we can let God sort of have the freedom to do what he needs to do. But as a child, what I saw was people who seemed to be trying to convince God to save them, to, to convince him that they were really, really serious about it. And if they were just serious enough and they just prayed long enough, then God would forgive them and save them. And they would walk away feeling like, yeah, I feel like, I feel like I'm saved. I feel like, I, feel like, I feel like it's good between me and God. I want to distance myself from that attitude. There's nothing wrong with an altar. I love an altar. I love praying with people and for people and for myself. Altars are very important. But I want you to believe this morning really clear about this. Jesus is not waiting on you to convince him to love you. He's not waiting on you to coerce him to love you. He is already compelled to love you. He's just waiting on you to ask him for what only he can give. Remember what he told the Samaritan lady? If you knew, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you, you would be asking him and he would freely give you this living water.